This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Hey listeners, Tim and Lance here. We are just popping in to let you know that we're very excited about our upcoming podcast called Dark Valley. It's premiering June 16th, 2023. That's this Friday. And Tim, not only are we super excited about the show itself, but we are very excited to announce that it is an official selection of the Tribeca Film Festival. That's right. We have been invited to attend the Creators Market in New York City. So big thanks to the Tribeca Film Festival. And we aired this episode on Missing a couple weeks ago. But again, we're so excited about this project that we want everybody to know about it. So we're playing it here, too, on Crawl Space. Okay, so I hope you enjoy this and make sure to follow and subscribe to Dark Valley. Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Jennifer and Lance. How are you both doing today? Doing very well, Tim. Thanks for asking. Doing great. Really looking forward to this conversation. This is our first like official one that we're going to put out there to the public about Dark Valley. Yeah, very exciting. I even wore my Inside the Actors Studio black turtleneck for this conversation. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's very appropriate. So today we're going to be speaking about the new podcast from Crawlspace Media. It's called Dark Valley. It is being released. It's premiering June 16th, 2023. And Jen, tell us, what is Dark Valley? Well, Dark Valley is an investigative series about the Connecticut River Valley serial killings, which happened during the 1980s up in New England, mostly in New Hampshire, a bit in Vermont. This is an unknown serial killer. Uh, These cases have never been solved. But what makes this story particularly unique is that there was one survivor, and her name is Jane Borowski. You know, naturally, you want to get right into, oh my God, how did Jane survive? How did she become the last known attack victim of this serial killer who spanned, what, 10 years? 78 and her attack was in 88. So as far as we know, 10 years, those are the stories that you're covering over that decade. It's really tempting to get into her story and and the attack itself. But I have a question for you before we do that, which is when we started this, we presented the idea of doing a series on the Connecticut River Valley killer killings because not a lot of people have had heard of this. There's a lot of information out there about the Zodiac and Son of Sam and Bundy and you know all of the you know, all of the usual suspects in the in that genre but the Connecticut River Valley killer wasn't sort of on anybody's radar and i remember you said that you did not want to be on air and we were thinking about who's going to host this jen didn't want to be on air she was like i'll i'll help research i'll write but i'm just not going to to be on air how did it come to pass that you ended up being the primary voice that drives this story well, first of all, that was all false modesty. I just wanted to be invited in like a vampire. Oh, <laughs> that makes more sense. 
No, I mean, like, historically, I've always been, like, a little uncomfortable behind the microphone and being the voice of something. I know you guys have graciously invited me in on Missing, on occasional episodes, occasional uh, crawlspace episodes and stuff. So I did, I guess, get my feet wet a bit in the last few years uh, working for, with you guys. I think it came to me to to voice this series because it was, like... Uh, logistically made sense. <laughs> a lot of this, it's not a conversational podcast. Um, it's it's not like, you know, revealing information through conversation like uh, our audiences may be used to. Uh, but it involves a lot of like scripted sort of narration and then a lot of field work. And it's like, I think um, being in the field and talking to people, like I was already going to have my voice kind of asking the questions and having conversations with Jane and with others like up in the valley. So I think it became a little bit of a necessity for me to be the voice of this thing. A little easier, keep it in-house, I suppose. And, you know, ended up enjoying it. I want to let the audience know that we are going to play a 12-minute preview clip at the end of this conversation. And you're going to have to subscribe to Dark Valley. There is a link in the show notes, and it is premiering with two episodes on June 16th. That's a Friday, and then it's weekly after that. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. A lot of people have covered the Connecticut River Valley case in one episode. My question to you is, how is this series different than covering it in one podcast episode and maybe even having an interview with Jane Borowski? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's been a lot of like excellent coverage out there in an episode or two. Um, but it just gives the broad strokes of what I consider to be like an absolute epic of a story. There's so much detail and so many twists and turns in Jane's story alone that I think uh, like an early conversation between us was like, well, maybe we'll, you know, do a couple like couple episodes of miniseries or something for missing. And then like the more we started to find out, we realized that this was a series that could stand on its own. Um, I think the other part of this is that uh, these are really difficult subjects to talk about. I mean, these were brutal, brutal murders, and family and friends of these victims required a little bit of relationship building and a little trust building. So that took time and attention and compassion <laughs> to sort of work work through. And th- that piece, that human piece is what makes this series different and more in-depth, I think. And you've obviously developed a relationship with Jane. You've worked with her for, you know, going on a couple of years now, and it's kind of blossomed into a friendship, and you've gotten to know her family as well. But are there any of the other victims that you've researched and, and talked about with Jane that you wish you could have that type of relationship with, but you can't because they weren't a survivor of this serial killer? I know I couldn't pick 
a particular woman, they're all interesting in their own right. They all led like really uh, unorthodox kind of lives. Uh, they were outdoorsy women. They were strong women. They were traveled alone. Uh, they were artistic. They were musicians. I think each one was an interesting person that I would have loved to have gotten to know. But uh, I think uh, the person that stands out to me is Betsy Critchley. Um, I, f- I feel like we've led similar lives. Like we're kind of, uh, I don't know, aimless in our 20s. <laughs> And did a lot of like, quote unquote, strange things, traveled and had odd jobs and that sort of thing. I think, yeah, we would have gotten along. (laughs) Okay. Can you tell us the victims' names and tell us a little bit about the general area and circumstances uh, around their deaths? Uh, Yeah, Tim, I'm happy to go through the victims. Um, But first, a little bit about the area. In my mind, I've likened the Connecticut River Valley to like a little Twin Peaksy sort of town. It's like those small kind of logging camps, factory towns along the river. It's a sleepy way of life. It's pretty rural. Um, Most of these towns are located just off of like I-91. So I think before the construction of the highway, it probably would have been a lot more inaccessible and a lot more insular. But during the 80s, it was like just after the construction of the highway. So more tourists uh, going up there to ski in the uh, Green Mountains, that sort of thing. Uh, But they sort of retain that kind of like gritty um, resilience to like harsh winters and stuff. So that's kind of the backdrop. Of, of these cases. So the first victim believed to have been a victim of the Connecticut River, River Valley Killer is uh, Betsy Critchley, who I mentioned uh, just a second ago. She was unfortunately um, hitchhiking down in Massachusetts because she wanted to go to the dentist to get her like this gap in her teeth fixed. Um, she's about to start a job at UVM as a creative writing instructor. On her way down, her little VW broke down. She decided to ask the dentist himself to give her a ride back to the highway so she could hitch back up to Vermont. And that's not like a short journey, right? <laughs> like That's like multiple hours. So I don't know. I thought it was pretty gutsy to try and hitchhike that far up there. And she was under a time limit, too. Like, she needed to be there the next day to start teaching. Um, So somewhere along her journey, uh, she was picked up by the the wrong person, by the Connecticut River Valley killer. And it wasn't until about six weeks later that her body was found in the woods of Unity, New Hampshire, which is just outside Claremont, New Hampshire, which is the kind of setting or locus for most of these cases. Um, And by the time authorities did find her, uh, her body was too decomposed to determine a cause of death. So after Betsy Critchley, there's a bit bit of a lull in the valley. So it wasn't until about three years later that we get our potential second victim. I just want to say, like, there's a caveat in all these cases that they aren't officially connected. There's not, like, DNA found on each victim that's like, oh, it was for sure a Valley Killer victim. So we're going off of, um, I guess, the location of where remains were found, where their abductions took place, and maybe some uh, stab patterns on the body to connect these two. So it's possible that there are other victims, and it's possible that some of these victims aren't attributed to the same killer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the case in any serial killer investigation. Uh, you never really know if uh, if a killer will 
switch up their MO, if they're, tr- they're going to experiment, um, if they're going to fly across the country and start killing there. I know there's definitely at least a handful of cases in the New England area that kind of fit the MO of the Valley Killer, but the cases we're going over here and in the first season of Dark Valley are all those core cases that, ha- that have been discussed together. And you just mentioned the stab patterns. What were these stab patterns? How, how is this significant and how is this connected? So the stab patterns have been described as a V-shape pattern in the upper chest and torso area. Each victim that could be determined a cause of death also suffered a severed jugular vein in their neck. So we have this period of about three years where no murders happen in the Connecticut Valley, at least ones we know about. But on May 30th of 1984, 17-year-old Bernice Cordemanche was uh, leaving her job outside of Claremont, New Hampshire. She worked as a nurse's aide, and uh, she got a call from her boyfriend at the time. And he asked her to, to make her way across town to the next town over called Newport. And he was there, like, helping his brother-in-law change out a transmission or something. So Bernice was supposed to go meet him in Newport, and uh, her I guess, method of travel because she didn't have a car or a license yet was to hitchhike. Again, this is the 80s and it was a lot more common at the time. And I think it's uncommon now, partly because of stories like this, right? That you don't hitchhike. Um, So she was last seen in the center of town in Claremont off of uh, Main Street walking by uh, Leo's One Stop Market. She makes her way to North Street and Washington and that is where she is last seen. So somebody picks her up, and it isn't until almost two years later that her remains are found uh, in the woods in Kellyville. And that's kind of like a non-town, but just like an area between Claremont and Newport. The medical examiner was able to determine a cause of death in Bernice, even though uh, her remains were skeletal when they were found, uh, due to nick marks on her rib cage. So her established cause of death is stabbing. And the natural assumption is that she was picked up while hitchhiking, so the person stopped to pick her up in response to her hitchhiking, not like she was being followed or chased. Yeah, I think that's the general consensus that she was trying to hitchhike across town. I mean, we never know. You never know if someone's being watched or or stalked for some time before they're picked up. I mean, it's possible Bernice could have been picked out wandering around a supermarket and this guy was following her for a week and waiting for a time where she was alone and vulnerable. I more so lean towards the fact that uh, this perpetrator was looking for victims of opportunity and hitchhikers are definitely that. Okay, so unlike this lull between Betsy and Bernice, uh, we have the next victim pretty shortly after Bernice. Um, This is just like a little over a month after Bernice's abduction and possible murder during the same time frame. So Ellen Freed was a nurse at the Valley Regional Hospital, which is a hospital located in Claremont, New Hampshire. Uh, She worked the second shift, so she got off around 11 p.m. She had a really close relationship with her sister, who was living on the West Coast at the time. And so Ellen left work, got off her shift, and drove to Leo's One Stop Market, which we had mentioned just previously, that Bernice had walked past uh, before she was abducted. 
So Ellen goes to Leo's market and she pulls up to a, a drive up payphone. So she doesn't get out of her car and, you know, calls her sister and they have a long conversation. And at some point, Ellen kind of stops and, and doesn't really explain what's going on, but she says, Oh, that's weird. And her sister said, like, she sounded nervous. And then she started her car, like turned over her ignition. And she's like, yeah, I, I gotta go. Um, and that was the last time anyone ever heard from or saw Ellen Freed. And unfortunately, her remains were found uh, a year later in 1985, also in the woods of Kellyville, New Hampshire, uh, just about, I think, under a couple miles from where Bernice Cordemosh was found. And Ellen's case, uh, much like Betsy's, uh, she was found too late to really determine a cause of death. Uh, they didn't find those nick marks on her rib cage as they did in Bernice's case. And it's a little confusing what the New Hampshire State Police have released thus far. Uh, but basically, they're kind of saying that no clothing was found with Ellen's remains. So they're speculating that maybe some kind of sexual assault had taken place. But if you listen to Dark Valley, it's, a, it's an issue we debate. And then a year later in 1985, we have uh, Eva Morse. Eva Morse just like breaks my heart. She had a really kind of hard life. Uh, she got pregnant very young, had a daughter, kind of fought to keep her daughter and everything. And she's working these minimum wage jobs at a box factory and could barely pay rent. She had moved in with a family friend and everything. So she was trying to make ends meet. Uh, but she decides to go to work uh, pretty early. She had to be there at 7 a.m. And uh, tells her manager that she feels ill and that she needs to leave. And I believe a couple of her colleagues offered to give her a ride home. But she was like, no, no, I'll catch my own ride. And so she's seen hitchhiking north from a town called North Walpole, but toward Claremont, New Hampshire, that town where Bernice and Ellen disappeared from. What's strange about Eva's case is that she lived in Charlestown, which was just south of Claremont, but she was seen hitchhiking more north, past where she lived. And there's, it's like a grand mystery why she was headed in that direction, who she was going to see. So she was picked up by at least two drivers. I know police had kind of found the first woman who gave her a ride, uh, but not the second. And that's probably who ended up abducting her. And Eva was found about a year later uh, in 1986 in the woods of Unity, New Hampshire, just under 500 yards from where Betsy Critchley was found about four years earlier. And Eva Morse's cause of death was stabbing and uh, neck was slit. And what was it about Eva's abduction and subsequent murder and press coverage, including the investigation, that stood out to you? Because we've had this conversation before and it felt to me like this was probably the first moment where you started to identify how these victims were being treated and maybe things could have been different if they were treated different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think each investigation uh, with these early victims were like handled wrongly in some way. Um, I don't think police in the area, because it was all these different little towns and municipalities and they weren't really talking to each other. Uh, so there's definitely uh, more that could have happened with each victim. Eva in particular was just like, 
so disgustingly talked about by the chief of police in uh in Charlestown and um in the media too. I mean, Eva was a, a heavier set woman and she w- worked this like not not very glamorous job and everything. And uh she was also bisexual and at that time and in that place it was not something that was looked on very very fairly or kindly and they kind of speculated that uh Eva pretty much caused her own death because she was consorting with like gay people in like the seedy underbelly of New Hampshire <laughs> which is crazy i think at one point they even pointed the figure at a woman she had been seeing uh previous to her disappearance and then comes Linda Moore And Linda Moore is pretty much like the most controversial connection to the Valley Killer because the the circumstances are just entirely different. Uh, For all of these victims, they were outside their own homes. They were either hitchhiking or like on a payphone or, you know, otherwise doing something that would, you know, put them in a position to be abducted. Not not in like a victim blaming way, but they were just like more easily accessible and vulnerable outside the house. Linda Moore, on the other hand was at her own home. She was sunbathing out in the yard um, when her kids were at school, her husband was at work, and um, she heard the phone ring inside, and she went to answer it. It was her husband. They had unfortunately had like a brief little argument on the phone, nothing serious. Uh, and then she heard a noise at the other end of the hall, and uh, she was blitz-assaulted, blitz-attacked, and she was stabbed viciously and uh i've heard it described as efficiently as well um she was stabbed in that v-shaped pattern on her chest but she was also spun around and her neck was slit from behind uh, which is kind of reminiscent of a military kill but linda moore ended up dying in her own living room and how were you able to identify that she was turned around and her throat was cut in that fashion I think it had to do with the blood spray pattern. She was attacked in a hallway that was rather narrow, which kind of emptied out into the kitchen and living room. And so, (laughs) I mean, this is a bit graphic, so fair warning. But when the throat is cut, you have this arterial spray uh, that has like uh, some distance on it. So there was like a blood spray pattern on the wall consistent with somebody having been turned around in the position to like make that better happen if that makes sense yeah and it seems pretty clear how linda moore's case is different than the others um as you described uh before you went into it um it's considerably different yeah absolutely i mean it's either like a natural kind of change in behavior pattern from a serial killer it's like trying to find an even more kind of uh risky situation to get away with murder in like entering into someone's house so it could just be like escalation on the valley killer's part and i'd be more kind of apt to believe that if we didn't have a couple other cases that happened in the same kind of pattern as the previous ones like people who are outside um and and vulnerable but yeah i mean Personally, I'm not totally convinced Linda Moore's attack is is entirely related, but it's definitely not off the table. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. 
So after Linda Moore uh, brings us to the last case before Jane Borowski's attack. Uh, so Barbara Agnew was a part-time nurse and she also trained other nurses on like hospital equipment and stuff. So she would travel around the country and, and um, she made, you know, a decent living doing that. She had one son and she lived uh, up in Vermont. And uh, one weekend, she decided to go meet a friend at a ski mountain in southern Vermont. She spent a great day skiing. And um, a storm was rolling in that night. So she decided to, you know, get back on the road and, and try to get back home before, like, you know, the brunt of the storm hit. Um, so she makes it within 10 minutes of her home and for some reason decides to pull over at a rest stop off of I-91 and it was at this rest stop that she met uh, someone who brutally attacked her. There was a brutal fight that ensued. There's blood everywhere, blood in her car, blood outside of her car. And her car was found at kind of an odd angle, too. So we know that she probably had jumped back in her car at one point and tried to escape in some way. But for whatever reason, wasn't successful. Whoever it was pulled her out of her car and abducted her from this rest area. Her car was later found in that same spot. Um, and it wasn't until the spring of 1987 that Barbara's remains were found on this very rural road in Heartland, Vermont, a uh, road that you definitely would not have stumbled upon had you not known it was there before. It's called Advent Hill Road. And her body was eerily found kind of placed beneath an apple tree. And it seems from like the the blood stain under the body that Barbara was killed at this site and she was stabbed to death and her neck was additionally cut okay Jen thanks for going over the cases the believed cases in the Connecticut River Valley killings um, now you mentioned Jane Borowski at the top of the interview she is a survivor of what we believe to be the the same killer um, she was attacked in August of 1988, and she was 22 at the time. So you've been working with her in this case, and how has that been, building relationship with her? I mean, it's been a joy and a pleasure. <laughs> uh, Jane is a wonderful, wonderful human being, and I think it's it's my great hope that people listen to Dark Valley and fall in love with Jane as much as I have in these past, you know, two and a half years. In short, like we could not have done this series justice without Jane's help um, and with her, you know, interest and cooperation. It's been years of phone calls and interviews and like, look what I found. What do you think of this? And would you look at this picture? So she's been an absolute sport about everything. Um, she is not only interested in, you know, figuring out what the hell happened to her back in 1988 and who could have done this to her, but her mission really is, as the only survivor, to speak for the other women who did not survive. And I think that that mission is what kind of like carries the heart of Dark Valley. That's really amazing. And I think the natural question that people will have, and I, I and you know, I have, but I know the answer to because I know you, but... I think the, the natural question is, why now with Jane? Why now, after all these years, has she decided to become a part of this investigative series and team up with you and, you know, and on some level, myself and Tim? Why, why us and why, why now? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. And I, I put it to Jane like in the series and she, you know, attempts to answer. It was serendipity in part. Jane would definitely say that she had to go through like a lot, a lot of years of therapy and working through her trauma and PTSD to get to a place where she could actually talk about this without getting super triggered and upset and have to go, you know, rebuild herself in some way. Um, So I think it was a matter of Jane being in the right emotional place to start telling her story and start looking into the other women's cases. And I think the other part of it is um, that we had similar values here at Crawl Space Media, every case we cover is victim focused. Like we, we we're just not interested in that like salacious uh, kind of storytelling, and and we do genuinely care um, about the victims in missing persons cases, in murder cases, in you know whatever injustice has has come to them. And I think because we approach these sto- these stories with that spirit, it kind of att- attracted someone like Jane, who is interested not only in what happened and who did it, but interested in these women's lives. And so Jane and I linked up because of that, because we genuinely wanted to know more about these women and wanted them to be remembered beyond, you know, they were stabbed 27 times. Now, what about John Philpin, the former uh, profiler? Tell us a little bit about him and what was it like building a relationship with him? Oh my God, John, John is amazing. So John is um, the original criminal profiler on the Connecticut River Valley cases. And he came at uh, profiling from a bit of a different angle. He was never law enforcement, uh, but he was a psychologist, a forensic psychologist. And um, he did a lot of work uh, with uh, male violent sex offenders and eventually started kind of weighing in on what kind of personality might commit, you know, this crime or this crime. And eventually was hired by, you know, the Vermont and New Hampshire task force for these cases. And so he was kind of there from day one of the investigation. So obviously we, we identified Dr. Philpin pretty early on as like a need to have for the podcast because he has all the information. Uh, he uh, was there at the time and I can't stress enough how hard it is to find people willing to talk and uh, who are both there at the time. What was maybe a little difficult with Dr. Philpin is that his allegiance is to Jane and his allegiance is to these these victims. And I think before we really set in on this, he had like kind of a negative opinion of true crime in general, uh, of the industry, of how uh, we use these stories as entertainment. So I think what a couple things had to be in place for him to agree to speak on the record with me. Uh, one was that we were you know, protective of Jane, that we we treated her story uh, kindly and and didn't just use her for a soundbite in some sense, you know. Um, and then the other part of it was like he wanted to know that this was a real investigatory effort, that this might move the needle a little bit in these cases. Otherwise, it's just rehashing and rehashing. So after those two things were kind of established over probably a year of talking on the phone, uh, finally he was like, okay. <laughs> I'll come on here and and lend my opinion and my expertise. And I'm so grateful for that. And what is it about him that connects him to that area? Why was it him that was, why was he so important to this? 
John was practicing. He had private practice up in Springfield, Vermont. And there was actually another serial killer in the Connecticut River Valley, a child murderer uh, by the name of Gary Schaefer. And uh, when he started abducting and killing, you know, 12, 13-year-old girls, John Philpin had developed this profile of him kind of just like on his own um not in official in an official capacity and the police at the time in springfield kind of caught wind of what john was doing and they brought him on board and i gotta say like dr philpin's profile of gary schaefer was gary schaefer without having the name like he was so spot on it was eerie and and John's process is a little different than you might think of, um, you know, watching Mindhunter or whatever. He's not like he would say he's not trying to enter the mind of a killer, but bringing the killer into his own mind, which is kind of a spiritual process for him, <laughs> for lack of a better uh, word. But, yeah, he's been instrumental in a lot of cases in that area. So it's important to him, like you said, that this was an actual investigation on some level that could create a movement, could create some sort of change in these murders. So he's been almost waiting for this without realizing it? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, waiting for someone to come along with enough interest and time to, you know, start digging into these details and like fact checking and talking to people again. Unfortunately, that was us. Now, what about law enforcement participation? Were you able to build any relationships to get participation from law enforcement? Um, In short, no. (laughs) Law enforcement, both in New Hampshire and Vermont, are aware of the project. We've definitely exchanged emails and stuff. Uh, I was able to speak to one of the original task force leaders. Uh, This is uh, Mike Prazo. Um, Back in the day, he declined to be recorded. I think law enforcement is generally a bit cagey around, you know, podcasters and and documentaries and that sort of thing. So he was able to give me like a good overview of the cases and what work, uh, you know, the New Hampshire side had sort of put into it. But beyond that, uh, not so much. Definitely been to see Vermont State Police for uh, a variety of reasons. But I think uh, New Hampshire in particular is just kind of closed off to the idea of utilizing media in that way. So they have not shared much information with me, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah, we've definitely experienced that with New Hampshire as well in our uh, years doing uh, the missing and the missing Maura Murray podcasts. Um, mm-hmm. But just if they're listening, just to let them know the door is always open um, on our end. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And if they are listening, um, I just want them to know that this can be a tool. Like we're not going to willy nilly just take whatever information you give us and like put it out there without a thought about how it might affect people or, you know, uh, we, we would welcome guidance on what information is correct, what information to withhold, what information to put out there. I think that would be extremely helpful and it could be a useful tool as well. It's a really good point. And also if there's word that gets back to them about this, I just want to emphasize like how long it's taken that this wasn't a rushed project where you went down a list of victims, told a little bit about them and we rushed it out. This is you mentioned two and a half years working with Jane, but this was conceived before even contacting Jane. So this is something that every episode has been really meticulously 
edited and notated to make sure that the information is out there uh, in the most responsible manner. And meticulously fact-checked, too, yeah. as much as possible. Obviously, you can't fact-check people's personal accounts. You always have to weigh people's story in the broader you know, context of these cases and stuff. So I th- everything is considered, uh, to use your word. I just have one more question, which isn't so much about the investigation itself. Like, if you can tell us one thing that was unexpected that you didn't realize was going to be a factor in telling these stories that really that you know away from the investigation part i want to preface my answer by saying something brief about dr philpin so when we started talking to each other he was like you know hesitant to jump on board for all the reasons we mentioned but the other part of it was that jane's case in particular affected john more than any other case he's ever worked on this man has talked about nightmares. He's talked about, you know, being unable to separate his psyche for a moment from from the killers and from being like just terrified with worry for for Jane and her safety. And he's like, you know, this this these cases will get into your bones. They just will. And I was like, okay, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I think, you know, our day jobs are hard. Like we talk about uh, difficult subjects and stuff. And there are times when cases like, you know, hits you a little harder than others. But there is something different about spending so much time uh, with one story. Um, And in particular, Jane's story. I have had nightmares about Jane. I've had nightmares about like I see her composite sketch, like a man who looks like her composite sketch in like a store in in a dream or something. It's like, uh, like this guy is some kind of phantom that's like walking in and out of my dreams and in through the research and through the interviews uh, that I've conducted. And that's like scary. Like it's, it's been personally affecting in that way. On the other side of that, Jane has become a true and genuine friend as well. Uh, like I love this woman (laughs) I love her family and it's like my honor and pleasure to help tell her story well that is a great answer and we are looking forward to the premiere date of June 16th 2023 for Dark Valley to uh to be out there for the public for all to hear Yes. So as Tim said, it's coming out the first two episodes of Dark Valley on June 16th, 2023. You're about to hear um, kind of a truncated version of episode one. Uh, It's about 12 minutes long and doesn't contain as much information as as, uh, episode one will, uh, but definitely gives you kind of a sense of the tone and a sense of, I guess, maybe the relationship between Jane and I. So please listen. I hope you enjoy And if you do, please rate and review and subscribe to Dark Valley and follow us on social at Dark Valley Show. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Hi, I'm Jennifer Emil, host of Dark Valley. What you're about to hear is an exclusive preview of Dark Valley a new investigative podcast from Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media. I hope you enjoy.
It's August 6th, 1988, and this is the night it all ended. It's getting late, and all Jane Borowski wants is a cold drink, yet the vendors at the Cheshire Fairground had closed for the evening. Jane is only 22 years old, but seven months pregnant and uncomfortable in the sticky heat of late summer. She finds her car parked in a field, a white Pontiac Firebird. Her boyfriend Dennis had bought it for her, and Jane loves her car. She thinks it's the best present anyone's ever given her. As she drives from Keene toward Swansea in central New Hampshire, Jane turns up the radio. Jane spots the fluorescent glow of Gamarlo's Market. The store is closed, but Jane knows there's a vending machine outside. So she pulls into the parking lot, digs around for some change, and purchases a soda. As she settles back into her Firebird and takes a sip, Jane notices a pair of headlights cut through the night. An older model Jeep Wagoneer pulls into Gamarlo's parking lot and parks right next to Jane on her passenger side. She pays it little mind. But strangely, the man gets out of his truck and, instead of walking toward the vending machine or payphone, crosses behind Jane's car. He comes to her window and leans down. Is the payphone working? He asks. But before Jane can answer, he opens her car door. He tries to pull her out. Jane struggles fiercely against him and somehow kicks upward as hard as she can. Her windshield shatters. The man leans into the car and presses a knife against her throat, its blade cool against her skin. Jane eases herself out of her car. You beat up my girlfriend, he says, bizarrely. Jane is confused. She never beat up anyone's girlfriend, and says as much. Aren't these Massachusetts plates, he asks. Jane shakes her head as he walks to the back of her car and looks at the New Hampshire plates. Then he turns back to his own car, Jane can't believe it. Relief floods through her, but then she looks at her prized firebird. Here's the thing you need to know about Jane Borowski. She's a fighter. And she's not going to take anyone's bullshit. Hey, asshole, she calls to him. What about my windshield? The man stalks back to Jane and threatens her with the knife again. Miraculously, Jane sees another car coming down the road and sees her chance. She breaks away, running toward the road, screaming wildly for help, but the car doesn't stop, doesn't see her, doesn't hear her. And then Jane is hit like a truck from behind as the man takes her to the ground. He straddles Jane and her pregnant belly and sinks the knife into her body over and over and over again. And Jane fights not just for her own life, but for the life of her unborn baby. And just as suddenly as it all started, he stops. The man calmly gets up and walks back to his truck. He pulls up to where Jane still lays on the ground. From the driver's window, he stares down on the woman he had just stabbed 27 times. As the blood begins to pool around her body, it is a long, cold stare. There is no expression, no feeling at all for what he had just done. Then he guns the car out of the parking lot, leaving Jane Borowski to die alone, clutching her pregnant belly. 
My name is Jane Borowski. I survived and I remember everything. You're listening to Dark Valley, an investigative series from Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell. favorite joke <laughs> <laughs> my favorite joke is we set up a microphone on an ironing board <laughs> we are in a beautiful day's in <laughs> <laughs> with bedspreads that say welcome sunshine <laughs> it's such a happy place <laughs> okay i mean it seems to the levels are good. Um, unfortunately, you're going to Jane is, of course, a survivor, but she's also warm and quick to laugh. She lives modestly and gives freely. She loves her family. She's also a spitfire and sassy as hell. She smokes cigarettes with her arms crossed and blows smoke from the corner of her mouth. But more than anything, Jane is honest. She would say it took a lot to be so open that she had to go through many dark years, overshadowed by that night in August of 1988. But here she is, in this shitty motel room, wearing a hot pink t-shirt and smiling so wide that it makes her eyes even bluer. I had just gotten out of the hospital, and of course everybody around me was like, like when I was in the hospital, they didn't want me to see the news, because I was on the news. They didn't want the newspapers to be brought into my room because they didn't want me to read the news. So back in 1988, weeks after her attack, Jane finally gets her hands on a local paper. I happened to be reading the newspaper and I saw that it was the article about me. Um, I think it was something like the headline was something like uh, stabbing victim released from hospital. Or, or I have to interrupt so Jane here for a little sidebar story. One day, Jane and I ventured to the library to do some archival research together. But they didn't take long. Oh, yeah. This is the one. I think this was the very first article I read. Yep, this was when I was released. That's the one I saw. Okay. Can you read the... So stabbing victim is released from Keene Hospital. So I started reading it. It had said something about uh, maybe connected to the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. 
and it's like Connecticut River Valley serial killer. And then I started reading and they had a, a brief description of each victim. And I I just I couldn't I couldn't believe my eyes. I was like, are you kidding me? I had a hard time processing this. Um, I'm reading in the paper, you know, Ellen Freed, she went missing this date, and then they found her remains on this date. And then each one I read, it wasn't, and none of them were survivors. They were all murdered. Stories are important. Stories can change minds, change culture, policy, can change lives. But it's a jumbled, confusing story, a 40-plus year investigation that is carried on in fits and starts over time. These cases have been shuffled from generation to generation of investigators, from agency to agency. Memories have faded, people have died, and the wilderness has reclaimed these soiled sites along the Connecticut River like it would any other dead thing. These women were strangers in life, and who in death are connected in some kind of perverse galaxy. And Jane, speaking like a woman possessed, trying to strain her ear beyond the veil, and hear these women speaking. Kathy, Betsy, Bernice, Eva, Ellen, Linda, Heidi, and Barbara. Jane and I traveled the roads these women were taken from, tripped and crawled through the dense wilds where their bodies were abandoned, tried to see these places through these women's eyes, tried to imagine the fear and the fight. I have spoken to the families and friends of these women and learned that there are more ways to grieve than I ever imagined. So, let's begin. You just heard part of episode one of Dark Valley, an epic whodunit with heart. If you liked what you heard, Dark Valley is out now. Please go on over and subscribe to Dark Valley wherever you get your podcasts. Join Jane Borowski and I on the search for America's unknown serial killer.